Welcome to the Top Order podcast. We raised the bat in our Jeetan Patel interview for 50, but just to be sure, we've waited till 51 to actually acknowledge it on the podcast. This week in cricket, we talk about the return of cricket to England with the West Indies scheduled to play a test match coming up against an England squad that have just had some intra-squad practice games. We talk about the passing of Sir Everton Weeks, one of the world-famous three Ws. We're also going to talk Sri Lanka, and Lippy's got a beef as well about the rights to the game in England next week. All coming up after our little jingle. So, Bordy, I'm coming to you first to talk about Sir Everton. Yeah, well, it's a sad day for cricket fans everywhere. Sir Everton Weeks passed away July 1st, 2020. Uh, 95 years old, a resident and um, born and bred in Barbados, one of the famous three Ws, along with Sir Frank Worrell and Sir Clyde Walcott. I mean, a tremendous cricketer, a great ambassador for West Indies cricket. He was the last surviving member of those famous three Ws, perhaps not as heralded as Sir Frank Worrell, but, but arguably one of the best of those three batsmen, averaged 58.61 across 48 test matches, still best for ninth all-time amongst those players who've completed their career. His first 1,000 runs in test cricket came in 12 innings, uh, one better than Bradman, and that earned him comparisons with Bradman throughout his career. Richie Benno famously compared him as the, the player that most likely resembled Bradman in that post-war era, um, combining famous power, delicate uh, a neat footwork against the spinners. He was well ahead of his time as a fielder. He was a tremendous fielder in the covers and then following that in the slips in his career, uh, released a book um, on on fielding, a, a how to field manual. So he was as successful as a player and, and loved as a teammate and as a competitor, perhaps no more than in the Lancashire League. So he spent uh, seven or seven plus seasons in the Lancashire League, scored a thousand plus runs in every year, uh, has a first class stumping to his name as well. So wherever he went, he broke records and with a, with a smile and a laugh, he was never far away from Sir Clyde and Sir Frank, and it's hoped that he'll be able to be laid to rest uh, alongside those other two famous Ws overlooking Kensington Cricket Ground in Barbados. So Vale Sir Everton week, so the cricket world will, will miss you very, very much. And it's just absolutely amazing looking at his first-class record as well. 3,600s, 54, 50s in a, a career of 150 games, which is a hell of a lot of games in mm. those days. Yep. So to have that you know, first-class average in test class test average both above 55 is mm. just absolutely phenomenal isn't it yeah i mean he he never failed to score a thousand runs in a season in, in english league cricket he averaged 95 in that league uh he has a first class stumping to his name he bowled leg spin he has i think over over 150 first class wickets 12,000 first class runs uh, a hell of a cricketer a fierce competitor um a lot of the time he was described as being one of the hardest hitting batsmen of his era as well and and just a fantastic cricketer and and he'll be sorely missed here here mm. uh, raj over to you for your this week in cricket yeah well you know you know that how much i love a um an accusation or two um the sri lankan minister has uh, claimed that he has evidence about the 2011 world cup final being fixed or, or sold uh, to some extent so mainly those are questions there around the fitness of Murali Dharan and Angelo Matthews. So Murali did play, but Angelo Matthews didn't. So the main players here being, um, or main people here being being interviewed are Aravinda De Silva, who was the chief selector at the time, and Sangha Kaura, who was the captain at the time, and then uh, Jay Wardner, who I assume was a, a senior player at the time, who they, they want to get his point of view on it. But basically it seems like it's all smoke and mirrors. There's, there's not really anything to these claims. Uh, the ICC concluded their investigation in the last, last couple of days and said that there was not really any reason to doubt the integrity of the match. Um, it's just sad, I guess, for me that as soon as that was mentioned, like I, I really loved that game. That was a really, really good game of cricket, a great final. It was 270-odd plays, uh, obviously 270-odd when they chased it down, but uh, I, was, I was just straight away I thought, damn, you know, mm. this is this is there's actually something to this. Mm. Um, what do you guys think about it? It's political, isn't it? It's the sports minister. The sports ministers in Sri Lanka have tended to get involved in all kinds of things, selection and whatnot. Look, I don't know their political system particularly well, having not studied it in any uh, depth for, for perhaps obvious reasons. But um, look, I, I just think that it's one of those, yeah, one of those things where there's, uh, you know, it's fish and chip wrappers tomorrow, isn't it? Hopefully. Yeah, Jay Woodner actually came out and, and he tweeted that, uh, you know, where's the evidence for this? This is this is all political and there's a, there's there's elections coming up next month. So 
Mm. Yeah, that, that's unfortunate. Um, I did just want to point out uh, the top six for that Indian team are talking about having to buy the rights for that or buy the win was Sevag, Tendulkar, Gambia, Kohli, Dhoni and Yuvraj Singh. <laughs> so that, that's a fairly strong batting lineup. I don't know why, why they would have to buy it in the first place. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's... Uh, that's just really sad that that uh, that came up for me in the last couple of weeks. Mm. The the thing that struck me was that Sangakara, the interview or the deposition or whatever it was, was seven hours. I thought I saw. What are, they, what are they talking about for seven hours? That's longer than the game. Yeah, I, I think it all it all centered around that selection, and then Sri Lanka were in quite a strong position in that game, and then India came back and and famously won it with a massive chase and a tremendous batting performance from that middle order. Mm. Look, too often and for too long. Politics has, has played a role in sport in Sri Lanka and, and I hope that now with this current administration that they can get away from that a little bit mm. and focus on performance on the field because Sri Lankan cricket has taken a bit of a dip in, in recent times. Obviously it was going to with the retirement of Mahela and, and Kumar but there are, there are good young players in that country. Let's just hope that they can get their cricket systems right and they can you know, develop those players and they can get back to being a really strong competitive test nation. Mm. Lippy, what about you? What have you got on the cards for this week in cricket? Look, the main thing for me really is is the fact that everyone's been, you know, so eager for cricket and now we're not going to get to watch it. It looks like in New Zealand here there's been this whole sort of, I don't know, mix up here. It sounds like Raj can probably fill in the details about Sky apparently just mucking this whole thing up and now maybe Spark will jump in by the time this podcast is released. But, yeah, it's, it's pretty disappointing to think that we've been waiting all this time for everyone to get sorted, and, and now we might not even get to watch this game. Yeah, that the article that came out uh, earlier this week, I think it's it's just there was some confusion around uh, Sky having the rights for West Indian cricket. So I was, they believed, and a lot of the other broadcasters believed, that they had rights to this series, but in fact they only had rights to the home stuff for um, for West Indies. So at the moment there is nobody in New Zealand who is going to be carrying this the rights to this game. Um, mm-hmm. I heard Spark Sport were uh, gearing up to, to put a bid in for it. Uh, I think it would be really good uh, for us to, to be able to watch it uh, on that medium. But, uh, yeah. So, so just to be clear, this is Sky Sports in New Zealand. So n- not calling into question Sky Sports in the UK still having the rights to broadcast the game. And I think their commentators go into the bubble pretty pretty soon, actually. Um, but, yeah, this is this is just in New Zealand. And this yeah, in New Zealand. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of just a... It just feels like a black mark against Sky, you know. They've just lost the, they've just lost the home coverage for New Zealand. You think this would have been an opportunity for them to go? Look, we we still care about cricket. We still want this to be important. We still want to broadcast this to you. And then, I don't know, you know, just the optics are really bad. Obviously, who knows what the actual behind the scenes scenario is? Mm. But yeah, it, it's the optics are just terrible. I mean, this is the first live cricket we're going to see in a long, long time, and we're all. You're all hanging out for live no, cricket in New Zealand. Not forgetting Vanuatu. Not yeah. forgetting the, the, the Bet Bada T10 blast in Vanuatu that was live streamed. But, I mean... And, it, and some horrendous European cricket league stuff. Yeah, there, I think. Yeah. You have to look really <laughs> deep into the into the bowels of the internet to get that kind of stuff. But, I mean, mainstream cricket is back and we want to be able to watch it. And it's on you, Spark Sport, or you, Sky Sport, to be able to do the business. You've talked mm. about wanting to broadcast live sport. Now is your opportunity to get on board. Mm. Just a quick show of hands. Who's still got their Sky Sports subscription mm. up and running, though? Yeah, still mm. do, yes. Okay. Mm, no. No? No. Fair enough. Right, we'll, we'll move swiftly on before we get too many nasty letters to, to the mailbag. Um, we talk a lot about previewing series. This seems to be the most protracted series preview we could possibly conceive with both England and West Indies going into their respective bubbles, it seems like, three or four months ago. Uh, to get you know COVID tests that were returned negative, and even that wasn't the case with um, with the Pakistan team that have just flown over. But practice games going on at Emirates Old Trafford, the ECB website live streaming the England squad games. Lippy, you've got some thoughts on those those two squads or the size of them? Oh, all I really wanted to say about that is that I actually really like that concept. The fact that you know we've got two inter squad games that we got to see, and and whether in this post-COVID environment, we now might see that more because I think it's pretty cool. Like if you think uh, back in the day, and, and I mean, I think rugby's talking about doing it now with this North-South game. Mm-hmm. They used to have a possibles-probables game with the rugby and they've done it with cricket in the past as well. I really love that concept and think, like, wouldn't it be cool if Will Young is facing Tim Southey and Trent Bolt and, you know, we sort of see what those guys are and it, and it is a real opportunity for them to go, I'm ready for this. I 
I should be in that team. And it, and it absolutely, yeah. I, I just feel like it would be a cool thing that comes of this. But you know, whether it will be or not, I mean, it's come in these cases because they haven't had cricket, and it's come in a sense because the West Indies have got a squad of twenty five, so they just have to play yeah. against each yeah. other. But yeah, well, if we could see it in the future, it'd be great. And I think it's fantastic. And I mean, the young opening bat for England has just about played his way into the test squad now, right? So we don't want to, you know, I think his name's Bracey. 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 Yeah. Scored, scored 85 in that first innings and, and has played his way now into that test squad for England. He's now the batting backup cover um, for Burns, Sibley, Crawley and Denley, who are going to form that top order for England. Yeah, when you don't know what, I mean, I don't know how much this has played a part, but Don Bess obviously has, has performed the best of the spinners in, in this these games. And that's kind of, you know, got his his position. I mean, he, he kind of had it, so maybe he already was going to get that spot. But, yeah, it's it's a great opportunity, I think, for guys to kind of claim their, their spot. Did, did you see that coming, uh, uh, Binksy? Because Leach still, he took three for, I think, in the second innings of that um, warm-up game. But, uh, yeah, he's just been leapfrogged. Yeah, so look, it's it's a difficult one. Did I see it coming? Probably not. We spoke to Jeetan Patel last week who, you know, bet the farm on Mo and Ali being potentially the number one spinner coming back into the squad. What I would say, I think when you look at it in hindsight and with the benefit of having seen what the squad is, um, which is, which is always helpful. You can see, you can see it's, it's, it's come from a place I think where England have been really keen in recent times to give possession to the guy that was in possession. Mm. Um, and you know, Trevor Bayliss's quote was always, I want to give a guy one test too many than one test, not enough. So, yeah, the fact that Bess is there, um, difficult because I, look, I didn't see the whole live stream, if I'm perfectly honest, um, but I certainly watched the highlights packages that were put together and he looked as if he was getting, you know, some decent shape on the ball. Lippy, you'd probably know better than me whether whether that was decent oh, I enjoyed, shape or I mean, not. I enjoyed him in South Africa. I thought, yeah, his, the, the actual revs and stuff he puts on, I thought was good. And then I think you looked at when the spinners came on to bowl in those warm-up games and it took Mo and Ali a long time to actually get on and get a bowl, whereas mm. Leach and um, Bess had, had, had got on a little bit earlier in their innings. So, yeah, not not, not surprised. And I, look, I like the look of him. He's got a little bit about him. Um, tries to spin the ball pretty hard. And I think when you kind of look at um, Mo and Ali's had some time out of the game, I don't doubt his class and I don't doubt that he's going to return to the fold at some point. But it's really great that you've got another kid, um, Don Bess, who can bat a little bit. So it's almost like a like for like. You've got a guy who really tries and puts some action on the ball and can offer you some handy, yeah, handy runs down the order as well. Mm. What about the uh, West Indies fellas? Anybody worried about what they've been putting up with the bat against each other? Well, I guess that's the thing, isn't it? It's against each other, and they've got a formidable pace mm. attack. So yeah, let you know. Let's see. Um, both of the warm-up games, West Indies and the England ones, relatively low scoring mm. on what looked like reasonable wickets. So, yeah, a bit of rust maybe. What are you expecting from the series from an England point of view? Sort of in recent times, I guess you would, in a normal scenario, you'd probably think this is an England test win or series win that you'd be expecting? Uh yeah, look, I think with the, with the level of English arrogance, potentially, but I think we've seen the West Indies come and dish it to us. I remember Headingley, um, Shy Hope scoring a brilliant 100, um, I think 100 in both innings of that game, actually. So, look, I don't think they can be underestimated, particularly with that pace attack and, uh, you know, a, a really, really articulate, intelligent uh, captain in Jason Holder. And Phil Simmons, who's actually got a lot of international experience, um, not, you know, with the West Indies and, and Bangladesh going back as well. So, look, I, I don't think it's um, a foregone conclusion. Um, and I think the other factor is, and it's a really interesting one uh, in this COVID environment, not just in England, but what happens if we are playing in these kind of bubbles in other countries, that typically when you've got a home series, you pick the grounds that you want to play at mm. to a certain extent mm. that might suit the way that you play. And I'm pretty sure if we're facing a very, very good seam attack, a quick bowling attack, the last place we would want to play them is Emirates Old Trafford, which mm. is the bounciest and most Australian or, um, you know, quick wicket that we've got. Um, you know, we'd probably want to say, let's, you know, let's get you to Trent Bridge or, or, um, or Edgebaston. So interesting to see how that, you know, has an impact on the series as well, potentially. Yeah, I don't want to underestimate England's seam attack, though. We've got Anderson back. He's looking like he's in good form. He's talked about feeling as fit as he ever has. 
Broad's still going to be there. So if you pick those two seamers and you pick Bess, your other option is one of Wokes, Archer, or Mark Wood, which is a fantastic place to be in from mm. a depth perspective. And, you know, if you use Archer in that third seamer, strike bowler, short spells role, he could be devastating for England in, in that test series. I'm really looking forward to see what seeing what West Indies can do with the bat. We all know that England's bowling is going to be good. We all know West Indies bowling attack is going to be good. It'll be interesting to see how both batting lineups go. England's got a, a side brimming full of potential now with those young opening bats and top order bats. Can they perform against that West Indies pace attack and, and can West Indies batsmen do likewise against a very, very experienced England bowling lineup? So Adam, Johnny and Mo not part of that 20-man or 22-man squad for the first test. They've effectively been released to go back to an, an ODI squad, a limited overs squad. The selectors haven't ruled out that they've got a place in the test team for England, but they certainly don't look like they're in the frame right now. Yeah, so they've named nine potential replacements for that test squad. I guess, obviously, um, a combination of some injury cover, but nine's pretty um, conservative in that respect. So you'd think there's a COVID component to that potentially, mm -hmm. you know, worst case scenarios and all that. Um, interesting, yes, that Ali and Bairstow aren't in there. So folks looks as if he's um, got the gauntlets as, as the backup guy. And for me, that's, you know, arguably he should be in the 11. Um, I don't know how you squeeze him in given the makeup of the side, but um, interesting that you've got two keepers that average under 40, one that does, and he's the guy that's the reserve at the moment. Um, but hey, um, Joss Butler can do no wrong post that World Cup. Um, Moeen Ali, I think, look, I guess, you know, he's just announced that he's going to come back. And I think arguably when you're bringing a player back into the environment, potentially that ODI and limited over stuff is a, a, a nicer route for him to get back in and around the group potentially. Um, and as we discussed earlier on, Don Bess hasn't done a lot wrong. Uh, neither has Jack Leach. So for them to be leapfrogged would be pretty, pretty harsh. Um, but yeah, interesting that, they both seem a long way away from that test side with nine other guys as reserved. You mentioned Bracey, obviously, Dan Lawrence, um, Saqib Mood, amongst others, you know, ahead of them in the pecking order, Jack Leach with the uh, with the twirling duties potentially. With that, with that uh, you've talked about Moan Ali there. Do you think that in England they've decided that they'll go with Wokes as, a, as their sort of all-round option? More, you know, they'll have him as a pace bowler rather than have Ali in there at eight or whatever and, bowl, and as a spinner? What, and not play a spinner? Or not play an all-round spinner or a spinner that, that's going to bat too? Yeah, well, I mean, Wokes' record in England is pretty good, both with bat and ball. I've not got the stats to hand, but he's certainly under 25 with the ball. He's scored a Test 100 in England. He's, you know, provides some handy, very, more than handy runs. He looks more than a number eight, mm. particularly playing in English conditions. So I think also he's probably got half an eye himself on who's going to lead that attack if and when... Jimmy Anderson and Stuart Broad ride off into the sunset. And I think he's got the experience and he's certainly got the skills. Um, the biggest thing for him is going to be whether he can do it on the road with a Kookaburra ball. His record with the Dukes is impeccable. Mm. Um, but yes, I, I certainly think he balances the side really nicely at, at, at eight or nine. Yeah, he was opening the bowling as well in those yeah. um, warm-up games, so you're probably right there. What do, you, what do we think about uh, if Mark Wood is in the eleven? How much atmosphere do we lose? I see he's been filling in for the Barmy Army. Yeah, so that was a fantastic clip. Um, him singing Jerusalem with a white T-shirt um, <laughs> on a, a broom handle and then, yeah, moved into a rendition of Jimmy, 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 Jimmy Anderson at the end of yeah, it as well. Can he, was... can he still do that, you reckon, if he's in the 11? Or does he have to be our 12th man or, or outside the squad? Well, look, I think at Lords it would be difficult because there's a lot of steps to get down. But at the uh, Aegeus Bowl, maybe he could, yeah, he could get down, sort of let the 10 guys go out, give them a bit of Jerusalem and come on just before the first nut. Yeah. Any chance he can play the trumpet? Because that's all they're missing now is, is someone mm. who's in the official England squad to be able to play the bugle to, to get the full atmosphere. Nah, a trumpet is a vector of disease, a little bit like a cricket ball, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. Oh, boy. It might be a good place to, to, sh to get the swish out. Might be a good place to get this with Shay, but look, it's been great to to raise the raise the bat in the last episode. Baldy, what's happening in Australia? Is there anything going on cricket wise? Obviously, a bit of a spike in Warney's Victoria, which uh, you know. Yeah, I mean that's 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 become a problem for Australia, and I don't think it bodes well for our ability to host the T Twenty World Cup later this year. I mean, the the closer we get to that tournament, the more and more it looks like that we'll have 
IPL running September through November. And if that tournament is staged at all, it'll be staged in January, February next year. New South Wales and Queensland are okay in terms of coronavirus. Tasmania's fine. Victoria's proving quite the problem. Um, but from the people that I talked to in Australia this week in, in that kind of area, it is to be expected that in a city the size of Melbourne, something like that was going to happen eventually. So they've just got to make sure that they're keeping it contained in those communities. Some of those communities are going into lockdown. As far as cricket's concerned, I think we'll see a return to club cricket and probably first-class domestic cricket in Australia by the time the normal summer rolls around. They've already cancelled the Zimbabwe and Afghanistan tours, as I understand it. Mm. So those teams that were going to come to Townsville and to come to some of those regional areas to play effectively summer warm-up games probably look like that's not going to happen now, which is a real shame. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure that the New Zealand women's tour of Australia has been ruled out yet, so hopefully by that stage we'll have a trans-Tasman bubble open that we can go and, and, and look at cricket, um, international cricket in Australia uh, in the early part of that summer. There's also something about the pay between the Australian players and the uh, cricket They've delayed it, haven't they? Yeah, so... That political situation in Australia is starting to look murkier and murkier. I think the fact that the takedown order that was issued to Rob Moody completely overshadowed the resignation of the CEO of Australian mm. Cricket yeah. speaks volumes about how that game is still really struggling in Australia. Even those um, those cultural revolutions that people keep talking about, that hasn't filtered into the board level by the look of it. It hasn't really filtered into what I would call the, the back office or, or that kind of engine room of, of the game in Australia. So... While there's lots to like about the on-field performances in recent times, there's still a long way to go in terms of administration and, and getting that right. The new administration, they're really hanging their hat on the um, the outcome of the Women's World Cup, a T20 World Cup, when they had the 80,000 people, mm. which was great for the game. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure what they're looking at for the future. They're using that as kind of a... Uh, a holder for them at the moment. Well, they have to, right? Because they've got no plan at the moment. They've got no... They've got no consistent... They've got no concrete plan to get cricket in place moving forward um, it looks like rugby league crowd, crowds and rugby crowds are back in Australian venues this weekend so that's going well but it all hinges on being able to get people into the country to play cricket and mm. at the moment that's going to be the biggest hurdle facing Australia moving forward Awesome. Well, look, coming up after the break, we're delighted that we're going to be hosting ESPN Crick Info journalist George DeBell. Interesting chat about the Australian situation as we raise our bat for just over 50 episodes. A little look back in the back catalogue will take you to Neil Maxwell, who was ex-CEO of the Kings Punjab 11, also involved in cricket in Australia. He had some really, really cool thoughts on what that Australian game needed to do. So if you want to mm. expand on that and Baldy's point, please go and take um, a listen to episode probably 46 or 47, something like that. Um, I stand to be corrected on the exact stats. 77% um, of them, of course, made up on the spot. But we will be back after the swish with George DeBell. Stay tuned. So delighted to welcome ESPN Crick Info's George DeBell to the podcast. Just about to go into the secure bubble, George. How's it, how's it all going? Yeah, really good, thank you. Uh, looking forward to it. Uh, I reckon it's probably the safest place to be in England as well. We get screened twice a day, tested every five days. Uh, don't have to go shopping, you know, perfect. Awesome. So the, I guess the obligatory bubble question, what do you know about the, I guess, the testing and the environment that you're going to go into over the next uh, the next little while? A uh, lot, uh, because um, we've been very thoroughly briefed uh, I mean, it, it's barely a bubble, really. I, I'm, I'm staying in a perfectly normal hotel and coming and going from the ground daily. Uh, we, we've been asked to keep our uh, contact with anybody to a minimum, which is which is fine. I mean, there's not a lot going on in the UK at the moment anyway. Um, but each morning when we arrive at the ground, we'll be screened. I think we're screened twice before we arrive at our desk. Uh, there are very few of us there. We're kept a long way from everybody else. Food and drink is bought to us occasionally, um, and uh, yeah, then we leave. There's no contact with players or anybody else. Uh, so hopefully, even if anybody does get ill, they can't affect the game. And um, uh, we've already been tested. Um, someone came to my house a couple of days ago. You know, swabbed up the nose, down the throat, all that sort of stuff. And uh, that will happen in every five days for the rest of the international summer, I believe. And as I say, we're screened twice a day at the ground as well. 
So uh, it, it seems pretty thorough to me. Uh, you know, I've got nothing but congratulations to the ECB, really, uh, for the ways that they've managed to get this to happen. It looked like an impossible task. And, um, you know, we're very grateful. Uh, I expect everyone in world cricket is very grateful to the West Indies and Pakistan team coming to an England, for coming to England at a time when I think it would have been understandable if they hadn't. Yeah, so I guess that leads the question that I've heard asked a number of times. If the shoe had been on the other foot, do you think England would have travelled somewhere like the West Indies or, or Pakistan if their level of pandemic had been at similar levels to ours? I don't know for sure. I mean, I think we probably all suspect not. But to be fair to England, they did go to Bangladesh a few years ago when very few people were. And they did go back to India in 2008 um, after the terrorist attack. So I, I don't think it's clear cut. Um, but, you know, we have to look at the fact that they did come home from Sri Lanka in whatever it was uh, a few months ago um, when they were basically, uh, there, was, there was concern from the families that they were all separated at that time. There was a lot of uncertainty. I, I don't know, but I do think that that perspective might be helpful going forward. And I, I suspect that the next tour of Pakistan by England looks more likely to happen than ever. I mean, I think it would have happened anyway, actually. I think there was a willingness to go back to Pakistan. But I think that uh, as long as the health and security situation is um, reasonable, I think there will be a willingness to go by the ECB next time uh, England play Pakistan, and I think that would be a very helpful, positive development. Yeah, we had Wazim Khan on the podcast a, a little while ago. How much of an impact do you think he's had on that, given his involvement in English cricket more broadly prior to his role with the Pakistan Cricket Board? Yeah, very. Uh, yeah, hugely positive figure. Um, I think that the Pakistan and West Indies situations were a bit different in that the COVID situation in Pakistan seems to be um, developing quite quickly now and uh, Pakistan left Lahore really as quickly as possible to get to England and, and into, a, again, a biosecure bubble. I think 10 of their uh, touring squad had tested positive at some stage, haven't they? Uh, so that's quite different to um, West Indies where uh, COVID has largely left the region uh, the region untouched. And you can really understand people there being very, very reluctant uh, to come to the UK. You know, you look at the papers or the, the media overseas at the moment talking about the UK, and it, it, obviously it's very negative. Uh, and if you live in paradise, which is what quite a lot of those guys in the West Indies team do, uh, on uh, fairly small islands which have been largely untouched, you can understand how they don't want to have the flights and the travel and the hotel stays, which possibly put people in danger. But yeah, your, your question about what he is right, I think it's a very good relationship between England and Pakistan cricket has been for a few years now, actually. And um, I'm sure that he, ha well, they all say that he hasn't asked for a reciprocal tour, but I'm sure that on a level he hopes that uh, Pakistan's goodwill is noted and that England go back and that would be a big achievement for him. I guess we want to move towards the actual cricket, but one factor, I suppose, is the intensity given that the guys haven't had that match practice, although they've you know, had this graduated return to various group training and then big squad training. How do you perceive yeah. the lack or the, the intensity of the games that are coming up um, in terms of that lack of practice and also perhaps not having the crowds there to feed off? Is that really going to affect the product of Test cricket, do you think? I don't think it's ideal uh, in that I don't think the televised product would be quite as uh, much fun, maybe, or quite as much atmosphere. I don't think it'll affect the players very much. Uh, in my experience, they are naturally extremely competitive. Uh, I'm not sure they know how not to be. Uh, I mean, I just remember a few years ago, one of the counties here, Warwickshire, one of the counties, uh, started to use their players to drive up membership. So they would phone last members, basically, yeah. and try and get them to to rejoin. And they became incredibly competitive about even doing that. It was a bit of a marketing gimmick, really. Uh, so I think that, you know, young people have spent their whole life competing, uh, knowing that there are a lot of TV eyes on them, 
I don't think there, there'll be any problem with them being extremely competitive with one another. And I think any sort of doubts they may have about that will be dispelled when a Shannon Gabriel or Joffre Archer bouncer whistles past their nose at night. Now, that'll wake them up pretty quickly, hey? So I, I think the TV product will be a bit different. But the other thing is, you, you've got to say, it's not as if we haven't experienced any of this before. I mean, I've done games in... Uh, the first couple of days of tests in Bangladesh tend not to be particularly well populated with crowds. I've done a couple of days actually on the recent tour in New Zealand. Very, very few people there. Uh, and England and Pakistan played a series in the UAE where, you know, there were almost no spectators. So I, I, I see it as similar to that. Those days, it's just a little bit more prosaic, I suppose, a little bit less fun. I, I don't think once you get into it, uh, you particularly notice. Uh, it, look, we understand where we are. Uh, I think, really, we're just all very grateful that we're getting some cricket. Yeah, look, here, here, it's been a, yeah, a, long, a, a long winter and... Um, yeah, particularly down here in New Zealand, the only real sport we've had to watch is the NRL with uh, piped-in crowd noise. And uh, yeah, I, I won't go into that because the other guys are big rugby league fans, but it's been terrible. Um, <laughs> how is the? How do you think this? You know, this fifty-five-man training squad has affected the pecking order. Uh, some players probably given a, an opportunity that they might not have got ordinarily. What, what do you think that looks like in terms of the medium term? I suppose for the England side. Well, I think uh, the squad they've named this first test doesn't suggest that has happened very much. I'm actually a bit disappointed at the conservative attitude they've shown to selection. Uh, I, I thought that uh, after England's winter tours, uh, they had enough evidence to make some judgments on players. So Ollie Pope, for example, has clearly stepped up and looked at terrific prospects. Joe Denley, well, I'd say less so. And I think they probably should have moved on. He's 34, he averages 30. Um, I, I think he's actually been quite lucky to average that many. I, I would have moved on. Uh, and they seem to be um, very strong on, well, he's the fellow in retention, or he, he's the fellow in possession, rather, therefore he retains. Because there hasn't been any, any cricket. And I'd say the same with Josh Butler as well. I, 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 you know, we know that Josh Butler is very talented. But in English cricket, sometimes you can spend a career being full of potential and you think of Mark Ram, Cash and Graham Hick and Chris Lewis and all sorts of people uh, and I think Josh Butler is a, a pretty lucky fella to, to win uh, an extension on his test career particularly when you've got them folks in reserve so uh, although there were some interesting names in that squad none of them at this stage have really uh, made their way through into the test uh, team uh, it might be that when the Ireland ODIs start there's only one clear day between the end of the West Indies series, Test series, and the Pac- uh, sorry, and the Ireland ODIs. So you would think there's not going to be a lot of crossover in squads. I think we'll see some different names then, and clearly uh, players will have a bit of an opportunity. But I don't know. I actually think they've been surprisingly cautious in their selections, and I would urge them to be a little bit more adventurous. You've got another situation, of course, right now where they'll be weighing up whether to play Broad and Anderson. I suspect they won't, but I, I, I nor do I think they should, because, you know, you've got to look to the future a little bit. Are both those guys going to be viable bowling options in Australia? Well, I'm sure they wouldn't let England down in 18 months' time, whatever it is. But, you know, maybe you've got to look at some of the other fellows who uh, are there as well. And I think in Wood and Archer, England arguably have two of the fastest bowlers in the world. Uh, very skillful bowlers as well, of course. Uh, and I think it would be really great to see them in tandem. I hope to do it at some stage of this series. George, you mentioned Joe Denley there in the England middle order. Obviously, Joe Root is out for the first test for the birth of his child. Who would you like to see come into that squad if England took a little bit more future-minded approach? And how do you see Wood versus Archer versus Wokes going into that first test? Well, Joe Denley's going to bat three. Mm. So uh, he, he's not necessarily replacing uh, Root or, or in the fact uh, Zach Crawley retains his place but he is at four but he's previously batted at three mm. so, so I, I would have I would have uh, batted Crawley at three I, I would have uh, left out Denley and I would have played Dan Lawrence uh, who's an, a young player from Essex and a very good Lions tour of Australia uh, and looked very good in the warm-up match the other day so 
I would have uh, replaced uh, him, uh, Denley with him. I think he's 12 years younger. He's got a much higher ceiling. Uh, and I think that's a missed opportunity. And I would have replaced Ben Folks. Uh, well, I'd brought in Ben Folks, sorry, for Joss Buck. Um, and I would have left Joss to be a very, very fine white ball player, even a great white ball player. Uh, and, um, you know, we all know England's schedule is unrelenting. Uh, I think he would be freed up to be a brilliant white ball player and not have to worry about Red Bull Britain anymore. I, think, I don't know how many tests he's played. 41, I think. He's got one test century. I, I think that's a, a long enough time uh, to have been given a decent go. But hey, he, he wins another opportunity. He's very talented. Uh, it'd be lovely if he proves me wrong. Oh, sorry, on the Wokes thing. Um, Wokes is... I mean, he's slightly different, isn't he? I, I, I'm a big Chris Wokes fan. He, he's... Uh, an all-rounder, you know, he's got a test century, he's got 10 wicket horns, uh, Wood and Archer are bowlers, uh, but they're quicker than him, and they probably are the sort of bowlers that England think could help them win a series in Australia. Rightly or wrongly, that's still pretty much the barometer by which English players and Australian players are, are judged. So uh, I'm not sure I see them competing with one another. I see maybe Wokes pushing for that Anderson Broad role I, I, I can't be sure, and they'll I'll name the squad, uh, the team probably in a few hours. But I, I suspect that with Benson Stokes as captain, he might go for Archer, Wood, Anderson as his three main seamers, him in support with John Best, providing spin. But, you know, I, I, I'm not absolutely certain on that. And what are your expectations for this Wisdom Trophy series? How do you think West Indies are going to go in England? Well, I do think they've got an opportunity, actually, because uh, as you point out, it's very valid. England without Joe Root are vulnerable. You know, their the batting has been fragile anyway. And Root probably, well, he's certainly in the best two batsmen. So you look at that top four of England right now, and it looks, well, it's unproven at best. That would be the generous way to describe it. And then you look at the West Indies bowling attack, and, you know, that's potent. It really is. Um, and it looks well-suited for lots of conditions. Again, I'm not quite sure what they're going to do. Um, Phil Simmons did say the other day that he thought Raheem Cornwall would play. I can't quite see how it, they get him in unless they drop a batsman uh, because I think they want to play four seamers. And I hope they do because the fourth of them, Alzari Joseph, looks really exciting to me. Um, you know, really could be a bit special. Otherwise, I think we expect Shannon Gabriel. He, he you know, did, didn't perhaps get the wickets he deserved, but was a, a huge figure in West Indies, beating England in the Caribbean. Uh, he's a lot of fun, a lot of pace, uh, decent skills, really good bowler. Uh, Kemar Roach, we know him quite a cricket he was, but he's a terrifically skillful bowler, particularly the Duke's ball. And then Jason Holder in sport, who uh, um, you know, is obviously the number one ranked all-rounder in the world right now in test cricket. So that looked really strong and really well suited to English conditions. Um, the, the choice is whether they are happy with Roston Chase as their spinner, Look, he looks fairly innocuous, doesn't he? But he took an eight for against Diggers last year. So what do I know? Um, and, uh, you know, the worry is their batting as well. Uh, on the basis that Test cricket is probably more entertaining, when the ball is slightly dominant over the bat, I think we'll have a really good fun series. And that they look like two flawed batting uh, units. Uh, history would suggest that England are favourites. Don't think West Indies side have won in England since 88. Uh, so, England, obviously, they are favourites, but they, they are vulnerable. And West Indies, you know, as I say, they, they have the skills, particularly in the bowling, to damage any side. Uh, they beat in England in the Caribbean only just over a year ago. Uh, I, I, they could do it again, but it would surprise me a little bit. England favourites for me. You mentioned the ball there, and also the selection of venues has obviously been forced upon the ECB to some extent. What part do you think the conditions Ooh. and the Duke's ball will play in this series? Um, well, the Duke's ball tends to keep uh, bowlers interested. I, I, you know, I, um, I'm a big fan of the Duke's ball, really. Um, I mean, you don't have to go back, back very far to see, uh, you know, the, the Cookerborough ball was obviously used in that uh, New Zealand, England series, and I thought it was, um, at times, fairly dire entertainment, uh, combined with very, very flat wickets. I mean, to be fair, there were, there were fair conditions, no doubt about that. But I thought that for a modern age audience, 
they were going to be a terrific sell. And I think if you took the English supporters out of those crowds, well, the crowds would have been numbered in the dozens. And I think uh, one day at Hamilton, there probably were about two dozen people there. So uh, I think we've got uh, a problem with test cricket generally, or not a challenge, in keeping it relevant and entertaining. And I think the Duke Ball played a role in doing that. So uh, the, the Duke Ball will, will probably swing, probably uh, seem a little bit more uh, than, than the Cooks were at, and that will be at use in this series. So that should keep the bowlers interested. In terms of the pitches, I don't know uh, quite what to expect. I think Old Trafford tends to be a pretty, uh, almost Australian style, not that quick, but an Australian style surface. It'll basically uh, have a bit of carry and bounce. Be a good old-fashioned test surface, uh, offering something to that ball, I could get. But, but it's generally pretty good for that. Thing. Southampton, I fear, might be a bit slow. Uh, the, uh, they've got a new groundsman who, who had done a very, very good job at his previous club, but I guess, you know, it takes a while to, to come to terms with things. This will be his first first-class match. He's in at the deep end of it. Uh, generally, it has been a little bit slow. Um, and it might be a bit of a slow steamer, which I guess would pr- probably help England. But it's um, something I'm not completely sure of. But the conditions in England, generally, you have to say, help steamers. But on these two surfaces, maybe less than most. So I'm fairly open-minded about it. Uh, I fear that uh, we'll have a bit of poor weather around as well, inevitably. Um, so it might be a bit stop-start. But, you know, the, the England side under Joe Root hardly draws games these days. Uh, you know, unless there's rain, they tend to win or lose. I think they were bowled out. They get bowled out under 100 fairly regularly, but they're equally capable of doing it to the opposition. Obviously, they won a game that bowled out 70 odd against Australia last year. So I, I actually expect it to be really entertaining because uh, I think they're two uh, really talented but slightly flawed sides. Yeah, and that often makes for a good series, doesn't it, when you've got that fragility in a couple of batting lineups and good same attacks. What about the rest yeah, of... And... Sorry, go on. Sorry, go on. Well, I was just going to say, uh, the, the attitude in England, and particularly when it's led by Ben Stokes, but Joe Root as well, will tend to be that the answer to any situation is to attack a little bit more. Uh, that, that, that was what England was like under Trevor Bayliss as coach. It, it was less so over the winter under Chris Wood, and they, and they had a decent success, actually, eventually, uh, playing a slightly... Uh, more patient style of cricket. But I think under Ben Stokes, they may revert to type and become, you know, they're, they're punchy. They're, they're, they're like um, a Rocky film. You know, you just see two heavyweights throwing <laughs> punches at each other all the time. But to be fair, uh, you know, whether that is the highest quality of cricket, I don't know. It's fantastically entertaining. England in the last few years have been as entertaining as they've ever been because um, they can be absolutely awful and then brilliant within within days of one another. And, and in Ben Stokes, of course, you've got one of the most watchable cricketers in the world right now. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, as I say, and I, I think it should be a lot of fun. And I, I think, I presume, there'll be a, a lot of eyes on it all around the world because people have been stars of cricket. I just read a piece, funnily enough, this morning saying that advertising revenue in India for the series was huge because, you know, it's a cricket star's world. I don't know whether you fellas will be sitting up all night watching it, but um, I think a lot of people around the world will, and um, I guess that's a real opportunity for all involved. Yeah, well, we're not too sure whether we'll be watching it. There's been a a little bit of a mix-up here. Sky Sports here thinking they had the rights, and they didn't. So there's a late... um, Really? Yeah, so there might actually be a late bid from spark sports who are our kind of challenger brand i guess a little bit like probably yeah. bt have been in the uk um, and they they run the rights to the rugby world cup for example off sky sports so yeah kind of waiting with with baited baited breath for the rest Imagine of the- thinking you had the rights and then not having them that, that sounds like the sort of mistake that has a fella clearing out his desk well, um, we, yeah, look, we, we won't necessarily be drawn on that, but um, yeah, look, certainly raised a few eyebrows when we saw that news filter through. For the rest of the summer, I guess there's a lot of water to go under um, a few bridges with the COVID situation in the UK and around the world as well. What, what oil have you got on whether or not the Australians are going to tour the UK in, in September and obviously World Cup looking unlikely and the IPL perhaps more likely? 
Well, let's talk about that first. I, I think that's a pretty bad look for the game of cricket, to be honest. Um, you know, uh, oh, let's not have the, the global tournament that benefits every nation. Let's have the uh, IPL, which, you know, uh, I, I think that's poor. And I, I think Australia dropped the ball there, to be honest. Uh, if they don't want to host it, or if they don't feel they can host it. And by the way, no, no one's minimising how difficult it is to host. There'll be 16 teams there. But I think at one stage in England this summer, there'll be eight international teams. Okay, so it's only half. But they're showing it can be done. They're showing it can be done in the country where COVID hit a lot more. Mm. So Australia are saying, okay, well, we don't think we can host it. Very difficult. But look, we're going to have this India series. We'll have the bilateral India series. And oh, yeah, why, why don't we host the World, uh, T20 World Cup the following year? So they don't miss out at all the way they're looking at it. Well, I don't know. I, I think that's, uh, say again, I think that's a pretty bad look. And I think to uh, host the IPL, brilliant. I mean, everyone wants the IPL to happen. But the IPL then effectively would have been given, what, three windows in the 13, 14 month period. So, uh, you know, in terms of the original one it had, the one it's going to get in September, and then the next one it will probably get in sort of April, May. Uh, so, uh, I mean, if you had any doubts about where the power lies in world cricket, you know, you just had to dispel, haven't you? So I think that's a bit disappointing. And I think that Australia called. Um, time on their attempt to host that tournament a bit too early. Uh, personally, I would have looked at other options. If they feel they can host it, I'd have looked at New Zealand. Maybe New Zealand would want it, but uh, I, I would have looked at other options. Uh, and and I, 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 I don't know. I'd be sort of, again, I just say it's a bad look to have the IPL where lots of people go to a country where COVID is clearly still escalating right now in India, uh, but not to Australia, which, well, it seems to be escalating again there right now, but at a much lower level. I think that's a bit disappointing. In terms of what I think will happen with the rest of the year, you know, I think you've got to be open-minded. But uh, England, for example, had a, an ODI tour to India in September. If that happens, uh, that's not going to happen, is it? Uh, I think that they then they will pencil in a tour to uh, South Africa, an ODI tour, I think, in December. Uh, I then think they'll go to Sri Lanka in January. The aim is that's the tour that was abandoned earlier this year. And they'll look to complete their India test tour from the end of January onwards, probably to March or April. And I suspect that that might happen in uh, the UAE. But I think it's too early to say for sure. Uh, I think it's really great that um, we're getting some international cricket and the ECB are managing to fulfill all their international fixtures. I hope that it also means that they're. Uh, mindful to fulfil the fixtures of those other nations as well. I think they will be. I don't, I'm not criticising them there at all. Um, but uh, there just seems to be a little propensity among some to pull the ladder up and look after themselves. And what I wouldn't like to see is, you know, if, if there's been any deal between India and Australia sort themselves out but leave, you know, countries who were terribly reliant on the T20 World Cup, which is basically all those other nations, uh, I think that would be disappointing and a bit irresponsible. We, we, we need to understand that we need each other at these moments. You know, international cricket does not revolve around three sides. You might think it does. Financially, they may be desperately important. But if those three sides play each other endlessly, as they uh, I think uh, the product will be damaged. I think it will become tired. Uh, the the travelling around the world, seeing different places, playing in different conditions and against different sides, that's part of the great joys of international cricket. Uh, and I think we've got to be very careful that this uh, episode, this pandemic, doesn't accelerate uh, the move towards uh, the top three, looking after themselves. And to be fair, I don't see mm. a lot of evidence of England doing that right now. Mm. But I am a little bit uneasy about what's happening in India and Australia. Does that make sense? Yeah, look, absolutely. And I think you mentioned New Zealand there. we still under border closure here, but... Uh, certainly the Avatar film crews are being let in, the America's Cup sailing teams are being let in. So I think there's certainly a case there that international sport could get on uh, here under the right the right conditions. Moving away from the international game, county cricket returning pretty soon. I, I guess it's too early to tell perhaps what impact this is going to have in the, the longer term, but certainly a number of players that would be you know, sweating on their contracts for next year. Obviously, some financial concerns as well. The coal pack situation with Brexit, etc. 
what's the you know what's your crystal ball looking like for 2021 are we going to have this hundred competition uh, county staff's going to be reduced is anyone going to go under what's the what's the gossip there there's actually a vote today i know some people say it was yesterday but it's actually today uh, about what the county season is going to look like uh this this year uh, and they will start on august 1st so we will get two a bit months of uh, county cricket which i think is a pretty good effort in the circumstances um i, I think they're going to vote to have a county championship sorry a first class competition it won't be called a county championship I think they'll play five games for the final, so potentially six games each, and I think they'll play a T20 competition. Um, and I think by the end of that, they'll be allowed to let spectators in, or at least some of them. You know, pubs are reopened, restaurants are reopened. It seems slightly bizarre that you can't go and sit outside for three hours and watch a cricket team. So uh, I, I think there's some uh, optimism there. But, you know, we've got to be honest, this is a salvage operation. You know, the game has lost a lot of money. I think there are 134 male cricketers out of contract at the end of September, October, and uh, uh, it's going to be real tough for, for some of those. There, there will be some, some big names who maybe retire uh, a bit early or don't get contracts. Uh, yeah, I think it's really, really difficult for them. Um, a divide has emerged between the counties, uh, uh, which has surprised me a bit. Uh, between those who want to play first-class cricket and those who don't. Uh, and the really interesting thing is that the ones who do have sort of lost patience with one, with one or two of those that seem a bit more reluctant. So I think that there'll be a vote today, as I say, to play first-class, and I think it'll be 1-12-6. Um, yeah, there are 18 counties, as you know. So, uh, and of those six that vote against it, some of them have very good reasons for wanting to play 50 over cricket instead. If you, I think Essex is one of them, a county champions at the moment, so it's a bit of a surprise maybe. But I think their players suggested they were a bit uncomfortable at staying in hotels uh, because some of their players are either you know, pregnant partners or they have very young families. And they're worried about the pandemic and uh, the virus. And I think yeah, that, those, those are reasonable concerns. And the club is absolutely, it's absolutely sad that the club listen and represent their views. So for that reason, they're going to vote against playing first-class cricket. One or two other clubs that just seem to be reluctant to spend any money. Uh, they don't want to spend money for hotel fees or the rest of it and seem to be using the pandemic as a bit of a, a front to justify that. Uh, I, I think there's... I'm a big county... Uh, sorry, I'm a big 18-county uh, supporter, but there are one or two that are very hard to justify right now. They're not contributing very much and, uh, you know, we've got a new ECB chairman coming in. I do think that fresh eyes will be given to this situation. And I do think that it is possible that uh, the number of counties will diminish. Uh, and I would look towards Glamorgan as being one that is, um, I don't know, takes a lot, doesn't deliver very much. Um, uh, Northampton actually do quite well on the pitch, but uh, I'm not sure what their management want to do. Derbyshire and Leicestershire will, will uh, Leicestershire, I guess, in particular, are financially uh, really struggling and there is less patience with them than perhaps there was before. I think that's a shame because I think they've contributed quite a lot. Um, but yeah, you're right to, to, to bring that up. I'm not sure anyone can predict exactly what's going to happen, but it's a volatile time and I'm hearing language I haven't heard before from people in the game, which is that, you know, maybe we don't want to play them anymore. Maybe we're just set up. They, they, they're a, Another mouth, they take a lot, they deliver very little. Um, the counties aren't as unified as they were at the start of this pandemic, and that's really interesting. Awesome. Well, look, we've taken up um, plenty of your time. Before we sign off, we want to ask a little bit of a, I guess, a self-serving question to get some uh, journalistic advice. You've been, embroiled might be the wrong word, but certainly... Um, been some media with a uh, claim from Condé Riley that you admitted some parts of his letter uh, from the news story about Phil Simmons sacking or demanding. Yeah, I want to make that very clear. I want, I want to make it very clear that Condé lied. Condé confused Riley. Let, let's be generous. Let's say he's, he misspoke. He's also ignored prompts to correct that, which have pointed out that he got that wrong. I have the letter. I might put the letter online next month. He, he, he has wrong. He's wrong a lot. I mean, I honestly think Barbados has uh, 
very strong claim to be the greatest Christian nation on earth. It is astonishing what that small island has produced in terms of great players. Uh, they can surely do better for that man to lead them as a Christian association. So yeah, I'll be very clear. Conde Riley lied. His entire letter, apart from greeting and sign-off, was included in my article. He has had that pointed out to him. Um, you know, I, I'm not saying I'll pursue it because, you know, life is too short to worry about confused Riley. But uh, he should... Uh, he, he makes a mistake when he suggests that ESPN, Disney ESPN, would do something like that. He makes a mistake. In more general terms, how, how tricky is it for you to manage those kind of sources and relationships while, you know, occasionally still being critical of what they're doing? Well, it doesn't feel very difficult, uh, generally. I, I, I don't know. I mean, 99% of the time, you're all on the same side. You know, you want cricket to prosper. Um, most people are okay with criticism if they think it's honest and well-intentioned. Um, I, if I would Dave Cameron or Conde Riley, I wouldn't write me. Uh, but that's because I think cricket's a lot better off without them. Um, you know, in terms of players and stuff, uh, you know, I mean, what other answer I find when players get irritated? Absolutely right. Um, but there, there are also times they say thanks very much. Um, they generally are pretty sensible about the fact that, you know, if, if you give an honest appraisal of their performance, they understand that. They pretty much understand that comes with the territory. Uh, in terms of administrators, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think you're not necessarily asking to be liked or anything. I suppose you want to be respected. You want to have your integrity and honesty respected and, and, and ditto, I suppose, the other way around. You know, I, I don't really, I, I, it's funny because I've been asked this two or three times in the last month now and, uh, it's not something I've thought about a lot. I don't think I'm particularly needy that way in terms of feeling the need to be liked. But uh, it, it is something, I suppose, that you want mutual respect and you want, I suppose, people to acknowledge that you have good intentions. But what I would say is that I never have an issue with um, good, well-intentioned people disagreeing. I actually think that's, that's very often how we learn. You discuss, you debate, uh, you argue. And, um, you know, you could disagree with friends, can't you, honestly? And uh, you, you can, uh, yeah, I, 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 see, I don't see a, a conflict there. So someone like uh, Tom Harrison, I have quite a lot of respect for. I'm, I'm quite critical of him. So I'm quite critical of the 100, for example, which I'm sorry you asked that a little while ago, and I forgot to answer. But Colin Grace, yeah, I have fallen out with. Um, so sometimes it happens, uh, sometimes it doesn't. I don't know, you can't really worry about it, but you just have to tell the truth and let the cards fall where they will a little bit. I mean, I, the sort of journalism that annoys me more than anything is pathetic journalism, sitting on the fence, passivity, when something needs to be said. Uh, there's no point picking fights, absolutely not. There's no need for that. And there's no need to try and exaggerate every situation so it becomes a, an inflamed issue. There, that, that is, there's, there's no need for that either. But somewhere between there, there's a time and place when you have to say, I don't think that's right or whatever. I, I, and I don't know. I guess you muddle your way through these things on a daily basis. Um, and I guess you can't be too thin-skinned. You can't be anyway now, you know. I mean, you know, if you're on Twitter or whatever, someone will tell you every day you're an idiot and someone will tell you every day you're better than you are. One thing I think I've noticed, I think this is fair, is that we all, players as well, but being a journalist with Cricket Info, so many people we give, uh, it, it's, I suppose, a little bit similar. We, we get too much praise and we get too much criticism. But what I would say is I think the praise is more damaging than the criticism for journalists. Uh, I, I, so I think you've got to be quite thick-skinned about both the praise and the criticism and ignore it and pretty much do your own thing. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I've explained that very well, but I'll say again, I think the praise is more damaging than the criticism, and I don't think I'm that thin-skinned.
don't really worry about it if I've upset people, and I'm certainly not worried about having upset Conde Riley. We'll, we'll never go bivouacking together, me and Conde, <laughs> and that's just fine. Awesome. Well, George, thank you so much for your time this evening. We're not going to let you off the phone, though, without a score prediction. So we've got um, in the room 3-0 th- to the West Indies twice and 2-1, uh, sorry, 3-0 to England twice and 2-1 to England twice. What uh, what do you see the scoreline being in the series? Well, I was going to say 3-0 to, to uh, West Indies would be a punchy old uh, prediction. No, that, that was just um, our clickbait well, for our, our Twitter feed. But no, it was it was three it was three nil England. I think it's going to rain a lot. Um, just having a look at the schedule, um, I, I think I'm going to say one one. One one with one to the rain. That seems pretty fair. Uh, I, I, I say it on the basis. I, I do really think England the favourites. You go to the bookie, you probably put money on England, but. You know, I have seen West Indies beat them in the last two years. The conditions actually are going to be quite similar. Won't be quite as warm, but beautiful. Um, you know, those, those pitches weren't particularly Caribbean in flavour. So, uh, and yeah, that 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 bowling attack against England's brittle batting. No, no, anything can happen. I, I'm really open-minded and looking forward to it. I, I, I honestly can't wait to get going. I'm even quite looking forward to the drive. So it's. Um, that's the main thing, isn't it? Just we're going to get some bloody cricket on at last, eh? Yeah, we certainly can't wait. Well, look, George, thank you so much for your time. And that does wrap up this section of the podcast. Uh, we'll be back after the break. So before we wrap up the podcast, let's have a little bit of a round table predictions for this England-West Indies series. It's been a while since we've done these, so just a quick recap. It is a three-test match series. That means three games of cricket, five days each in length. Who's going to take the honours, Baldy? Oh, England are going to be too strong for the West Indies. It's either going to be 2-1 or 3-0. I'm going for England 3-0, far too strong for the West Indies in this Test Series. Yeah, I, along the, I'm thinking along the same lines as you, Baldy. I think that with the West Indian batsmen who have stayed in the West Indies, it's going to put too much of a handicap on them, I think. Uh, 3-0 for me as well. But I'm really looking forward to seeing the West Indian bowling attack. Oh, you know, the, Cornwall, I can't the, the, well, not him, the pace bowlers in, in particular. Oh, they, um, can't <laughs> wait. For me. Oh, it's, it's going to be the highlight of my they summer. We're not involved. having any more off spinners on the podcast. We've had like 17 off spinners in the last four episodes. That's all right. There's plenty of league spinners around. No, but in, seri- in all seriousness, they seem to be um, building some depth in their pace bowling department. So looking forward to seeing that as well. Uh, it's it's 2 1 for me to England. And I, I really, I'm really interested to see how much. And, and how much you know you just don't know what's going to happen and how much that will kind of change the game it, it, it's going to be a really weird environment for everyone i think and that's yeah i just want to see how people handle it the no crowds the whole atmosphere of playing in there will be really weird for us for those guys for us we re, we're used to playing with no fans used to you know seeing a dog walk past and, and nothing going on but for them it will be quite weird it hasn't happened for a long time mm. for me Look, I really hope we get three games of cricket first and foremost. Um, the British government decided today to open pubs again and it's been called Super Saturday and a lot of the pictures I've seen on the media, there was not a hell of a lot of social distancing going on. I'd imagine they're just trying to get the second spike done and dusted with by the looks of their strategy, um, if they even have a strategy. So look, in terms of the cricket in piece, I just hope that they actually get the three games in without uh, those camps being affected by that. Uh, if they do, for me, it's going to be a bit of an arse snipper. I think it's going to be 2-1 England, but I think it's going to be really, really close because I think there's going to be some rust. Um, and I certainly think that the West Indies have got some players in that camp that can put in the kind of performances that will put that England top order, which let's not forget, Root misses this first test match mm. to attend the birth of his child. Um, look, I, I really think that you know they've got to you know they've got to really look at that top order because you've got yes some real options with Crawley, uh, Sibley, Ollie Pipe, back. Burns is back, but you've got a, a number three under a little bit of pressure in Denley um, and a new ball attack that could you know rip across uh, rip across a, a a very good batting lineup. So look, I think it's going to be I think it's going to be pretty close. 
Just right round the table, 3-0 from Baldy, 3-0 from Raj, 2-1 and 2-1 from <laughs> Lippy and myself. A little bit of an, um, what was probably an audible a sort of guffaw slash sneeze slash I'm not sure, um, hopefully not COVID onto that nice pop filter. But look, it's been great to be back talking this week in cricket with something real coming up, hopefully on our televisions here in New Zealand. Um but that's where we'll leave it for today. Look out on the feed for more guests. And we alluded to it earlier on another spinner. We've got Ajaz Patel, who's just been awarded a Black Caps contract on the show in the feed very, very shortly. Tuning in to the Top Order podcast. Before you disappear from our feed, if you're a new listener, please do go and check out the back catalogue. We've spoken recently to New Zealand coach Gary Stead. We've got Graham Thorpe. We've got Shane Dietz. We've got Barry Richards, Shane Bond, Colin Miller, all in the back catalogue. You can find the details, www.thetoporderpodcast.com. We're the Top Order Podcast on Instagram, although we're still really figuring that out. We're at Top Order Pod on Facebook and Twitter. So don't be shy to jump on, give our tweets a share or a retweet, and we'll see you next week. 